You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another brief pre-Christmas episode of the Driving Law podcast. I'm Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me today is nobody. Um, And the reason that there's nobody with me today is the reason of the problems with our roads right now. And this has of course been sort of the top driving law related story this month in British Columbia, which is what is going on with the BC government and their absence of any <laughs> any useful ability to clear snow and to get highways ready in the lower mainland when there is a snowstorm or when conditions are adverse. As we've seen uh, in the last week, uh, millions of people have been impacted by the snowstorm. Millions of people have had travel plans waylaid or diverted or cancelled altogether. We've seen chaos at our airports, which really isn't a driving law-related issue, but nevertheless is a problem. And as of Thursday night, uh, drivers were warned to stay off the road until Saturday, which is Christmas Day. This means that for people who are working the rest of the week, traveling on the 23rd to go spend Christmas with their families, they're being warned not to be on the roads. It's pretty disappointing. Another difficult Christmas for British Columbians. As uh, you probably recall, COVID-19 related restrictions meant that in 2020, uh, Christmas was effectively cancelled. In 2021, uh, we also had restrictions on gatherings, um, the number of households that could get together, the number of individual people that could be in a household, as well as prohibitions on gathering with people who were not vaccinated which prevented a lot of people from having their full family Christmas. And this year in 2022, people in British Columbia thought this was finally going to be the year that they could get together with their friends and family and celebrate the holidays. For a lot of people, this means that travel plans and arrangements, um, you know, driving uh, bookings, uh, holidays, days off from work, were all planned well in advance to take advantage of the first time in two years that people have really been able to gather to celebrate the holidays. And then we have this snowstorm hit. That sort of aspect of it makes it all the more frustrating, I think, for a lot of people. Because there were so many restrictions in the last two years that prevented a proper Christmas, that prevented people from traveling, that prevented people from crossing the border, to be told at the 11th hour that the BC government doesn't have the capacity to have roads in the lower mainland cleared to deal with the problem of freezing rain, to deal with the problem of a snowstorm, which is anticipated to bring 20 to 30 centimeters of snow, a normal amount of snow in most of Canada for this time of year. That's disappointing to a lot of people. So we've seen so far uh, WestJet suspending all flights in and out of YVR. And this isn't just related. 
the decision that WestJet made to suspend all of their flights wasn't just related to the inability of the airport to get things together. It was also directly connected to problems with driving law in British Columbia. The airport relies on driving. A lot of people don't realize this, but at the airport, a lot of the things that are done in relation to airplanes have to do with moving vehicles that are on the tarmac on the air side of the airport carrying baggage, performing de-icing, um, doing maintenance and repairs to via- to airplanes. All of these things actually require vehicles and require licensed people. And not only is YVR short-staffed because of, you know, the respiratory season, the increase in RSV and influenza, in addition to COVID-19 cases, this is the busiest travel uh, days of the year, and they're facing a snowstorm without the ability to operate this equipment because YVR doesn't have enough snowplow equipment to deal with getting the runways cleared and getting the tarmac cleared to bring all of this equipment to the planes. It doesn't have enough de-icing equipment either. Um, BC Ferries has cancelled sailings. And BC Ferries is part of driving law. A lot of people don't think about it that way. But did you know that the Motor Vehicle Act defines a highway or industrial road, which is where you could get a traffic ticket or an immediate roadside prohibition, as including ferry approaches and ferry landings. And while that doesn't apply to ferries governed by the South Coast Transportation Authority, lots of judgments that have come from Road Safety BC's tribunal have found that nevertheless, Road uh, Road Safety BC's authority and the Motor Vehicle Act's authority extends to BC ferries property as well. Now, I don't necessarily agree with those judgments, and I don't think that they're legally sound, but... It is part of a driving route in the province. We essentially extend the provisions of the Motor Vehicle Act to many ferries in the province by calling them roadways, even though they're not roads. Isn't that cool that in British Columbia, a boat can actually be a road? A ferry can actually be a road? A ferry terminal can be a road? And so BC Ferries cancelling sailings has to do with driving law. It also has to do with the ability to actually get the cars into the terminal, park the cars, get the cars loaded onto the boat, and the safety conditions as moving those uh, cars around um, can uh, significantly delay sailings. Um, BC Ferries uh, proactively cancelled a number of its sailings for uh, this morning as a result of the winter storm that was expected overnight. And of course, these sailings are, are by and large relied on by people who are in vehicles to move from one portion of the province to another portion of the province. And this, of course, is delaying um, and interrupting people's travel plans. So what's the government to do? What is the government supposed to be doing to try to um, uh, to try and deal with this, some people have suggested that Metro Vancouver host what they call a snow summit. Um, some councillors uh, from uh, New Westminster, uh, Councillor Daniel Fontaine and Surrey Councillor Linda Annis, have both suggested that there be a snow summit um, so that Metro Vancouver mayors can get their ducks in a row and get their affairs in order and figure out how to deal with a few inches of snow that ultimately, as we've seen now twice this year, effectively shuts down the economy. A lot of people have been critical of this, um, noting in part that the idea of a snow summit is a very expensive um, 
uh, expensive undertaking. It would require a lot of intermunicipal cooperation. It wouldn't necessarily lead to s- solutions to the problem in time for them to be implemented next year. Some people have been calling on the federal government to come up with a mechanism to um, uh, to deal with snow in British Columbia. And some people have been calling on the provincial government uh, to come up with a mechanism uh, to deal with snow in British Columbia by making it the BC government's problem um, to address uh, address the snow. And in the circumstances, uh, there, is, uh, there is an obligation, in my view, on the BC government to deal with this. This shouldn't be a problem of an interjurisdictional jigsaw puzzle between municipalities so that people who live in Surrey might be able to get out of Surrey, but they can't get through Burnaby, for example. That's not acceptable. This is a provincial issue, and provincial roads and highways need to be properly cleared. And if that means making the investment in buying additional snow plows and snow clearing material in sanding and salting roads proactively when we know that the temperatures are going to drop before they drop, then that's worth the investment. If we think about what happened as a result of the last snowstorm, both in people who were not, just this month, both in people who were not able to make it into work and in people who were waylaid in their travel plans home, who didn't get home because they were dealing with, um, you know, some 11-hour commutes or six-hour commutes or seven-hour commutes, who didn't make it home until one o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning, um, who had no dinner, nowhere to use the bathroom. What is the impact of that on the economy? You have thousands of people who then may not go into work the next day or may not be as productive the next day, who are more of a hazard on the road the next day if they decide to go into work because they're underslept and they haven't eaten properly. This is a public safety issue. And the consequences, the financial consequences of this are going to cost the government more money than a small investment in more snow plows, in more snow clearing material, and in snow mitigation efforts such as sanding and salting. Yes, it makes the roads ugly, and it, it might mar that image of, you know, beautiful, uh, clean roads and sunsets that we see on lots of Vancouver bridges. But you know what? I'd rather we fuel the economy. I'd rather we have people driving in a manner that's going to get them home safely on roads that are safe to be used than essentially halt the economy just because we can't get people home um, and because we don't want to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars or even a couple million dollars one time to buy the equipment that's necessary to make this happen. For, for me, this is not even a question. Should there be a snow summit? Probably not. Should the provincial government be making the investment now so that we don't end up in this situation in 2023, next winter? Absolutely. We also know this is only the middle of winter. We're only partway through. We still have uh, all of, um, uh, all of uh, the rest of December, which is only a week, but nevertheless, we have the rest of December, we have all of January, we have all of February, in which we can still expect that there's going to be some snow. So we need to get on it, and we need to get the snow removed, and the government needs to make the investment. Now, the second thing I wanted to talk about uh, this uh, week was a very interesting um, photo posted by the Vancouver Police Department on Twitter. 
Uh, they t- posted on December 18th a photo along with a tweet that says, Last night, a 63-year-old Vancouver resident was charged with impaired driving after a witness called 911. This is the second time in 11 days he's been arrested for impaired driving. In both incidents, the driver's BAC was 300 milligrams per cent, over three times the legal limit. Now, along with the photo, or sorry, along with the tweet, they posted a photo and, and they indicated in the subsequent tweet that this was not a photo of the person who was uh, arrested for impaired driving. But they posted a photo of a man on the phone in the lawyer room. And you can tell it's the actual VPD lawyer room because you can see the duty council phone number on the wall. Uh, you can see the phone on the wall and uh, the CBA's uh, legal directory uh, right next to the phone, as well as a list of lawyers. So, It's clear that this is an actual jail phone room. But why post an image of somebody who appears to be an accused in a criminal file? And maybe they're not. You know, some people in the comments had said, no, this might be a a police officer posing or this is a stock photo. It's not a stock photo. Maybe it's a police officer or a civilian member posing for the photo. But the photo itself is hugely problematic. Posting a photo taken very close to somebody who is in a room, not through a window. You can tell that this is in the room with the individual who's on the phone, purportedly on a private call with a a lawyer, undermines confidence in the execution of the right to counsel by the Vancouver Police Department. Because the Vancouver Police Department is posting something like this and is suggesting uh, in the circumstances that that they are uh, taking photographs of you while you're in the phone room, they are undermining confidence in the right to counsel. Now, you might say, okay, this is this is a little bit silly, Kyla. How does this undermine confidence in the right to counsel? A lot of people are skeptical about whether or not when they contact a lawyer at a police station, they're going to be listened in on. A lot of people, in my experience, because I talk to people who are in custody with the police, a lot of people are concerned that the conversation that they have with counsel is either being recorded or is being monitored And police officers often don't do anything to dissuade this perception. They stand outside the door, peering in the window. I've had cases where police officers said that they could overhear the phone call, but they just didn't take note of any of the information and pretended that they couldn't hear it as far as conducting their investigation. I've had cases where police officers have said ridiculous things, like, I stood five feet away, so I couldn't hear what was being said. I can hear people who are five feet away from me talking on the phone, all the time. In a courtroom, you're more than five feet from the witness when you're having a conversation with them and cross-examining them. You're more than five feet from the judge who you're making submissions to and who is speaking back to you. The, the idea that this photo couldn't undermine the right to counsel when people are already so concerned about privacy in their conversations with lawyers is an absurd proposition. And it was inappropriate, in my view, for the Vancouver Police Department traffic section to be posting a photo depicting somebody in a private call, but clearly depicting that that was not a private setting. And the Vancouver Police Department should recognize the flaws with posting the photo like this and the manner in which the um uh, the manner in which the photo was conducted um the 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 Vancouver Police Department should not be sending out messages whether they're they're overt or whether they're implicit that undermine the privacy and sanctity of that most important call in a situation where somebody is in need of immediate legal advice about their rights and their obligations
And I, I, you know, for them to say this is just a stock photo is just not good enough. It's not good enough that the police posted it in the first place. There's lots of ways to depict somebody who's been arrested in a photograph that doesn't interfere with the public perception of access to counsel in a police investigation. So with that, we now turn to the ridiculous drivers of the week. The reviews are in. This book has been a lifesaver. If you haven't bought a copy yet, I can't recommend it enough. Thanks to the pinpoint method, I feel like I now have concrete strategies I can employ for difficult situations. Published by LexisNexis, cross-examination the pinpoint method is an essential addition to your bookshelf. Order now. And I say drivers because while we're talking about police behaving badly, let's talk about the Los Angeles Police Department, whose response to uh, seven, not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, but seven Los Angeles Police Departments who were arrested in a very short time frame, like within the last few days, seven police officers arrested for impaired driving. Half of them had a blood alcohol level more than twice the legal limit. Several of them resulted in injury-related crashes. And uh, the Los Angeles Police Department's Professional Standards Bureau uh, notes that there's a substantial and sudden increase that represents an alarming trend as the end of the year celebrations commence. But the government, the LAPD's response drink responsibly, celebrate responsibly. It's not to investigate (laughs) the underlying persistent and pervasive problem in policing, not just in the LAPD, but in every police organization with alcohol abuse, people self-medicating the trauma that they experience as police officers with alcohol and drugs. The, um, the, The problem is not that people aren't celebrating responsibly. The problem is that police officers aren't actually having their mental health properly protected. And the Los Angeles Police Department's response is even more ridiculous, in my view, than the seven police officers who in a matter of days were arrested for multiple impaired driving incidents. Um, these are these are concerning, and the LAPD even made it worse by effectively facilitating this um, using a, uh, a a tactic that gave leniency to police officers for their first offense, but on a second incident, a lengthy suspension or maybe termination. And this was supposed to be like a progressive discipline approach that allowed officers with alcohol-related incidents to remain on the job. But the problem is that it ended up actually, you know, creating an increase um, that uh, they also, in secret, um, voted on a proposed policy that would lower the acceptable blood alcohol level for an off-duty but armed police officer to 0.04, which is half the legal limit for driving. And it's, in fact, the legal limit for driving in some U.S. states. The result of the vote... um, Uh, has not been made public, so we don't even know whether or not police officers who are off-duty in Los Angeles are allowed to walk around with their firearms at .04. The Los Angeles Police Department is the ridiculous driver of the week. Maybe they're not um, drivers, but 
the impaired drivers that are rampant in the Los Angeles Police Department are the ridiculous aspect of this story. And I encourage you to check this out, not only because it is objectively quite absurd that the the situation would be this bad and the gov- and their responses celebrate responsibly but also objectively quite absurd that we see such um i guess shaming conduct and and sort of denouncing this conduct by the public while implicitly allowing it and permitting it within the Los Angeles Police Department and as I'm sure if you research this, you will also see in many police departments around the world. So that's our podcast, short and sweet in time for the holidays. Take your time with your family, enjoy your holidays, and we'll be back at you with our last podcast of the year on December 30th. And if you need to reach us in the meantime, we are available. Give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.